0: Hi, folks. Jack Spirko here. Today, you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind, commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds,
1: but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, guys, we are rewinding back 2,810 days. That would be seven years, eight months, 11 days. uh, To February 22nd, 2010, episode 383, Ten uncommon edible plants for every backyard. I, I chose this episode for a couple reasons. The first one, and a primarily most important reason, is we're heading into Thanksgiving. You know what happens after Thanksgiving? Christmas does. And there's a lot of downtime in there. A lot of us that you know we work our asses off in the spring and somewhat in the summer and the fall. A lot of stuff's been put to bed. We have shorter days and you know, maybe we, instead of like working too much with the, we actually have another problem. We don't have as much to do. And a lot of times we, uh, this is what I call seed catalog time and seed and plant catalog time. We sit down and we start planning for our next year, uh, to a great degree. And I think that there's, there's a lot of fun in that, honestly, for me, I'm figuring out what I'm going to try differently this year. And also, since I know that time's coming. It seemed like a good time to do this. Here's the, the plants that you're going to hear about today. Some of you have been around a while, so you've probably heard of some of them before. Maybe some will still be news to you. Uh, orich, uh, ground cherries, calendula, sunberry, w- wazantle, uh Asian long beans, New Zealand spinach. That's also known as wario greens. Uh, amaranth, lamb's quarters, and buckwheat. We're going to talk about all of those today. Some of my opinions on some of these have changed. I pretty much at this point consider buckwheat a plant to grow as a cover crop and for bees. I, that's about it. And some forage, too. But I, I, uh, I did my experimenting with buckwheat and trying to get it to hole and all, and it just it, it ain't worth it. Not to me personally, but it's still a great plant. I still grow it all the time. Uh, and, and another reason that I decided to do this one is because it's kind of a fun show. There's nothing heavy about it. There's nothing, you know, heavy duty responsibility about it. There's no pending doom. There's no politics. There's no economics. There's no ass clown interventions. It's just a fun show. And I think every once in a while we need one of those, including during the rewinds. And uh, it also gives me a chance to, to give you a little bit of a business tip. So one of the things you'll hear me say in this episode is I have seed sources for all of these. Now, this was a long time ago. We didn't have anywhere near the uh, number of people supporting the MSB that we do today. So some of the links in there are to companies that used to support the MSB. Some are to companies that never did. I'd recommend that when you, uh, if you decide you want to buy any of these seeds we talk about today, check one of the four companies in the benefits area of the MSB that does discounts. And, and do business with a company that gives you a discount and supports the show. But I did stick to the original providers in all of these. But this show, again, is eight years old. So when I decided to copy the show notes over for the Rewind episode, I started clicking links. Eight of the ten didn't work. Eight of the ten went to the, a page on the website and said, page not found, 404 error, whatever. Here's the interesting thing. I searched for the product on that provider's page, and they all still sell it. What's happened is all those companies have upgraded their website somewhere over the last eight years, and they changed their catalog indexing system, and guess what happened? Links didn't work anymore. Now, I'm just going to point out, the Survival Podcast has over 24,000 postings on it. It has been online for 10 years, almost. It is very well thought of by Google and the other search engines. A link from my website is valuable. Multiple links from my website are valuable. Links on an article, as far as Google's concerned, they're all articles that are topical to what you do, like a show about seeds and plants, are really valuable. And for you guys that have websites and you decide to do a new site, change things, you need to learn what redirection is. And you need to know how to do that with basically a text file. And if you don't know, you need to get some help and do that. If your site's been around any length of time and has any number of links pointing inbound to it, basically you can say, if you, if you went here, go there. And if you wanted to go here, go there. And the search engines will see that as though that's just a new place for that page. And they'll re-index it. And they'll still count all the old links. And if somebody finds you somewhere and clicks a link, they'll be able to actually find what they're looking for. Wouldn't that be a good thing? I think you'd want to be found, and I'm going to tell you, even if you don't do it that level, uh, some things have happened recently with people. We don't use this, like some, some supporting vendors and stuff. Change our links in the MSB, you know, because that's private; it's not going to be seen by the search engines or whatever. But they change the name of their company, or they change some of their brand, and what do they do with the old domain? They just let it go to hell. They just let it just just let it go, and. So all they had to do is just redirect their primary domain to their new domain. At least do that. It's 8 9 bucks a year to maintain that domain. And then all those links out there will at least get to your website. In fact, somebody didn't get featured in a Rewind. I uh, was considering a different re- Rewind show for today, and I just don't have time to figure out what's going on and fix it. And I didn't know whether or not I mentioned the URL in the interview itself, I, or the, the guest did. Uh, but the guest has let their old URL go. And it's now like a whole bunch of porn. It's like discounts to porn sites. So I'm not rerunning that. And if I do, I'll have to go through it and find anywhere we mention that and take it out. And, and usually what I'm doing rewinds it up. Listen, guys. Don't let your internet properties go idle. If I don't care what you do. Just point them to where your new world is. Because all the work that you've done out there, you're letting it all go to hell otherwise. Just a little piece of advice with that. Otherwise, some really cool plants that a lot of people don't grow and a lot more people should, coming at you right here in this episode of TSP Rewind. Another day. Hi folks,
0: this is Jack Spierkoe with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world. The changing times and the things that we all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Uh, we're going to break tradition today. I guess an informal tradition that kind of began uh, a few months ago with uh, Listener Feedback Monday. Now, there's one guy I know going to listen to today's show that's waiting to hear something very specific that um, I, I promised I would do. I'm going to probably do that show for tomorrow. Um, I am going to get to your issue. so personal little little shout-out there to somebody who knows who they are. Um, but today I'm actually going to do, I decided I want to make sure that I keep bringing you a variety of things and um, kind of mixing things up once in a while. So I'm going to talk about gardening today. We're, we're heading into the later part of spring. People are going to be starting to plant more and more. And I'm going to go through uh, ten different things uh, today that you can plant in your garden through various parts of the year that all have unique attributes, but here's the thing. Very few of them can you find at the grocery store. In fact, I would say none of these are you likely to find at the grocery store with the exception of maybe one or two in maybe like a special section of certain grocery stores and things like that, but they're not very common that you can go out and purchase them.
1: The next thing is
0: they're not very common in America's backyard gardens, uh, and they should be. Every one of them that I'm going to give you today, I'm going to go through kind of some unique things about it and what makes it cool and why you should be growing it. The next thing is all of them are relatively easy to grow to a point where they go to seed, save the seeds and replant next year. Uh, they're all they're all easily obtained in uh, let's say heirloom and open pollinated varieties for that. There's very little hybridization that's been done with any of them, so you don't even have that as a, an issue. None of them, since none of them are really large commercial crops, with the exception of one, um, has even been messed with by the likes of Monsanto. They don't have time for it. And um, last but not least, because they're rare and unusual, when you throw them in a salad or cook with them and you bring guests over, you're going to have an awful lot of conversation to do, an awful lot of talking. You'll be able to explain the background, what the stuff is, where it came from, how it's cool, why you have it, why normal people don't have it. And maybe that will lead you to some conversations about gardening, which will lead you to conversations about preparedness in general. So I believe that these ten items can help you spread the preparedness message. So that's why I decided to do this show today. All right, with that, let's rock on and get involved with today's show. Again, ten plants that are probably not in your backyard but probably should be in your backyard. Ten plants that uh, come from various parts of the world. Some are native to the United States. Some are native to Asia. Some are native to uh, Russia. Some are native to South America. Uh, some really have varieties that grow all over the world. Uh, but they are specific regional varieties that have been really cultivated by man. And, again, I want you to, as I go through these, I want you to think beyond just, hey, I can plant that. I want you to think about how you could use it, what niches it fills in your food storage gaps and your gardening gaps. Like, you know, there's things like growing wheat can be done in a backyard, but it's really not real easy to do. Even if you have an acre, it's it's kind of tough to grow your own wheat to any quantity. Let's put it another way. It makes it financially uh, advantageous. Wheat is so inexpensive. That to dedicate enough ground in a backyard production, let's say grow 200 pounds of wheat a year, uh, you could go out and buy it and probably uh make better use of that ground in a backyard. Because there's so much that goes involved with growing wheat, threshing wheat, and things like that. Not that you couldn't do it. Not that I don't admire you if you do. I'm just saying that a lot. It's a lot of people make that decision. They just go, man, I need that much space. think of all the other stuff they could grow there, and then they say, and, I, and then I have to thresh it, and you know, all this other stuff. So. We're going to talk about some things maybe that can fill some of those roles today uh, by plants that you maybe would like to grow, but for one reason or another do not. Uh, the other thing is things like wheat. Why Why would I avoid growing wheat myself? I'm not afraid of the work. I'm not. I've, once we move, I have plenty of land to do it with. Um, I'm not going to do it because I want to grow things that are a little bit harder to come by or a little bit more expensive to come by than wheat so that I am maximizing my return of investment for my land. I also want to grow things that have maybe a better impact on the land uh, and have less care and less requirements than wheat and are less susceptible to crop damage. You get with spring wheat, let's say, or or, or winter wheat, if you get a real heavy rain right before that wheat's ready to harvest, uh, especially or snow, like a late snow or something like that, it weighs the head down, they can be pushed to the ground and rot. That's why, you know, during the uh, little ice age, a lot of people starved. Because the wheat crops failed, because it was too cold, but more because of how wet it was and the uh, the wheat crops rotting on the ground. So uh, look how these things can fill those gaps for you as I go through. Uh, the first one is called orich or orach, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I don't know what the proper pronunciation is. I've heard it both ways, but orach is an amazing plant. Um, it's it's it's. Amazing how much seed one Oroch plant will produce if you let it grow to fruition. I had one last year that grew to about, I'd say about four feet, maybe four and a half feet tall. I got, I don't know, if you take your two hands and put them together like the Allstate sign, enough seeds to fill that in twice from one plant that I decided to let go to seed to see how much seed it would produce. So what that tells me is you can start out with a small seed stock of Oroch. And you would want to save your seed from more than one plant to preserve some genetic diversity in the plants. But you could propagate this over and over and over. it grows fast. So if you plant it as early as it will tolerate cold, and it's not real cold tolerant, but it will tolerate what you would call the very light frost, the stuff where you're getting down to like 38 degrees, 36 degrees, but you get some spots where there's still a little bit of frost on the ground. Anything colder than that will kill it dead. But if you wait till the last spring frost to get that stuff going, maybe give it a little bit of protection when it's young, you can get some stuff up going to seed very early in the year and be using seed to plant new Oroch going through, um, you know, just your first generation, second generation, third generation within one year. As long as you understand that maybe you're going to get two that are going to go to seed and then your subsequent ones are just planting for green. So what do we do with Oroch? Oroch is primarily a, pro, a plant that we grow for a green usage. To get the best usage out of it, you want to let it grow to about a foot and just chop it. Uh, th- that'll give you a beautiful little plant to, to chop up and throw in a salad. It's kind of like a red spinach. The variety that I grow is called Magenta Magic. And it is absolutely a stunning, gorgeous plant, even in or- ornamental capacity. And that's the other thing. A lot of these plants, uh, that's one of the points I left out, would actually be very nice and, you know, mixed in flower beds and around your house and around the front yard where you're planting edibles. And, you know, some people don't want to plant vegetables down their front yard. Well, nobody's going to look at this and understand that's what it is. And you can, like, start this in a a little peat pot or a little starter pot or a newspaper pot. And you can start them every few weeks out. So that once they get to a certain height that you want to go ahead and cut them, you have one of half that size that you can drop right in or several of them you can drop right in. So this is an amazing ornamental, but it's extremely nutritious. It's high in iron. It's high in folate. Uh, it's, high. it's actually got a pretty decent amount of protein. The seeds are generally not used because they come with this little husk that would really be a pain in the butt uh, to dig all the seeds out of. But you could grind the seeds and get a reasonable uh, seed meal out of them that's really quite high in protein. But it's fr- primarily a plant you use for greens, even though they're, it's red. You let it grow about maybe 18 inches tall and cut several of them like that, cut that 18-inch plant up into three 6-inch pieces, leave the leaves, the stems whole, and braise that with some kind of stir-fry, absolutely phenomenal that way as well. So raw or braised, uh, easy to grow. It's a relative to lamb's quarters. I don't know what will kill it other than cold. Uh, Last year I had a lot of pest problems as I made some switches with some things and didn't quite get uh, the start that I wanted in the spring because of how cold and wet our spring was last year. And some of my companion plantings didn't come, and I was working so hard, I didn't really pay attention to things like neem oil as much as I should have. Nothing touched the orange. There wasn't a hole in it. Nothing bit it. Nothing ate any of it. It just grew. It grew beautifully with no attention whatsoever. Carefree, easy to grow plant. Probably belongs in your backyard too. The next one is called Ground Cherries. I didn't grow them last year, but I've grown them before. Uh, our buddy from the forum, uh, who's been on the show, Matt, has uh, has some videos on them. They're great. Uh, they look like a tomato plant, but they only grow a couple feet high, and then they just start bushing out. And you'll be amazed if you plant two ground cherry plants, how much production you'll get. Plant four, you'll probably be giving them away, which, again, that's a good thing. Um, I actually have found them more resistant to diseases and blight and things like that, fungal infections than average tomato plants. Which makes sense because they really haven't been messed with a lot by human beings. They pretty much are a wild plant that we now cultivate. What they look like is a little tomato plant with a bunch of little paper lantern looking things on them. And when you pull that little paper lantern thing off, it's like a husk, almost like a tomatillo if you know what that is, but it's a lighter husk than a tomatino. And it, it just, the little berry just pops right out of it. And it's a little, looks like a little yellow cherry tomato and there's a few different varieties of them. Kind of has a pineapple characteristic to it. Tastes like a tropical fruit. Um, something that if you put a bowl on the table, they'll probably disappear relatively quickly. Uh, but they'll store on a bowl in the you know, spring or summertime, uh, or in a bowl on a spring or summertime on a, on a, on a table a lot better than something like cherries or raspberries that are gonna require pretty much immediate refrigeration before they start going bad well. They can sit there for a day or two if they last that long. Uh, you can eat them fresh. They can be used to make jellies and sauces. Uh But what they do is they bring kind of a tropical fruit thing to your garden, even if you live in the northeast or the northwest, where you don't think you can have tropical-style fruits. Start them in a pot just like a tomato. Set them out the same time of the year you would tomatoes. Give them the same type of treatment and care and protection that you would a tomato. And you'll have brown cherries. And, and I want you to, again, get the cherry thing, I, I think they're a lot more pineapple-esque uh, maybe more like a pineapple cross with like some kind of a melon. Maybe a little bit kiwi going on in there than they are anything that reminds me of a cherry. I guess they call them a cherry because they're just about cherry size. No pits or seeds, though. Well, the seeds are there, but you can eat them. Again, here's the thing about ground cherries. Do a little bit of hand pollinating or keep them isolated from your tomatoes to avoid any uh, cross-pollination. And come on, guys, how many seeds do you think you can get out of a few uh, ground cherry plants? And I want you to think about as you're saving seeds with this stuff, you're probably going to save way more seed than you can use. Either get involved in something formal like Seed Savers Exchange or reach out to other people on your regional boards and start doing some regional or even national seeds, uh, seed trading on our forum. I think there's a huge opportunity for that. But beyond that, start looking for your neighborhood gardeners. You know, when you go to start your grand, ground church, let's say you're going to grow four plants this year. we'll start eight. Start 12. It's cheap. It's a little bit of dirt and a little pot. You can make the pot out of newspaper if you don't want to spend money. Okay? Then look for your neighbors that garden and say, hey, would you like to try one or two of these? Give the plants away. I think you can make some money selling them to uh, nurseries and stuff if you sell the stuff they don't have. Uh, you can probably make, if you have a place that's good to set up a little roadside stand or like a, kind of sort of like a garage sale operation on the weekends just for plants, you can probably sell them in your neighborhood. But I say, heck, uh, unless you're hurting and need the money – or unless you 're going to go big full scale with the operation, just give them away it 's a great way to reach out and build community okay so next up on the list today is actually a flower it 's a flower called calendula um, i 've heard people pronounce it calendula, which I think it's spelled a little close to that, but it's calendula. Um, these are also known as pot marigold. A lot of times when you hear people talk about making wine out of marigolds, this is the plant that they 're actually talking about this is uh, this is the the truly medicinal uh marigold. It's not really related though directly in any way to the Tagastes marigold, which is the more common smaller marigolds, the French marigolds uh type plants. Calendula is uh it's an amazing plant. It has amazing ability to uh to draw uh wound uh infections out. It um, has a really great anti inflammatory uh, characteristic. This is the plant that, when well, my wife had uh, a pretty nasty uh, sting that was either from a wasp or, or some type of vent that she was having a mild allergic reaction to on her hand last year that I pulled this up, rubbed on it, and almost immediately the swelling cut in half, and within an hour it was completely gone. And generally when she has that type of experience, uh, it's a uh, all-day-long experience even with some Benadryl. So it has this great medicinal property to it, but we're talking about edibles today. So what's the deal with calendula as far as an edible? Well, actually the, uh, the the foliage, the leaves, are considered a pot herb, so they're useful as an edible, but they're only so useful. But the flowers are edible. The flowers have this kind of um, there's no real spice to them like there is with something like an assertion, but it's a kind of a, a little bit of a fruity overtone. Well, what makes them cool though is to just pluck one or two of these big, beautiful, and most of them are kind of an orange to orange red looking color with these kind of Pedal, you know, multi-petal look and pull those petals out and toss them into a salad. You do that, especially with guests that maybe are not accustomed to something like flower blossoms uh, in their salad, and it gets a great conversation piece. Now, you make a salad where you've got a few of the little ground cherries cut up in it, some of that magenta magic orach, and the, the color of the, the orach, folks, the magenta magic, it's iridescent. It's something that's almost like you've never really seen anything that really looks like that before. The closest thing I've seen to magenta orage is uh, the Hopi red diamaranth. and it's still not just this popping color. And you drop that in with some flowers, and I know I'm like a survival guy. I'm talking about putting flowers on a salad, but I'm also talking about kind of evangelizing the message of preparedness. And I'm telling you that when you start to put things like this together, when you make a visual impression on somebody with food you create a conversation piece. So the big thing with calendula, to me, or pot marigold, is that it's not only an edible, it's a medicinal. So now I've got a multi-purpose item. It's also extremely attractive to pollinating insects and predatory wasps. So by planting these things, it won't have the repellent effect that a Tegaste species marigold will, where you want to bring some French marigolds in, too, because they help repel pests. But what your uh, what your calendula will actually do is help bring in beneficial insects far better uh, than any uh, than any of the other uh, miracle species uh, will for you. Then on top of that, we get something edible and we get a medicinal. So a really cool plant overall. Nice, pretty flower. So if you're a husband and you've been gardening and your wife's not really excited about the vegetables, it's something you can kind of add in. And again, you start looking at a vegetable garden, you're growing some of this magenta orange. you're growing some French marigolds for the repellent effect, you're growing calendula for its edibility and for its medicinal value, and you have those stacked into a vegetable garden, it starts to look a lot less like a vegetable garden. It starts to look a lot more just like a garden for visual sake. And then if we get rid of all straight edges and things like that, we start to use a permaculture principle with these plants, our backyard starts to look like just this kind of, Beautiful. Um, it's beautiful, but yet it's not tidy. It's it's beautiful chaos, I guess, is the way that a good permaculture setup looks like. And then you guys that are like, I don't want a garden because if this shit hits the fan, my neighbors will steal from me because they'll know I'll have a garden and I'll be a big target. Well, if you grow things this way, somebody totally looks at your backyard and doesn't look like there's anything to eat there. It looks like a big, giant flower garden. That's not real valuable to people that are not knowledgeable. So I guess there is a little bit of incognito there. I'm not really worried about that, though. I figure if we have a problem that's that big, everybody that's alive is a target for one reason or another anyway. I might as well have something to defend, not to sit around miserable living on gruel. Uh, but there you go. There's there's another plant that I think is a good thing for you to look at adding this year if you haven't grown it before. And again, this is a plant that's not only edible and medicinal, but it's very attractive. So it belongs not just in your backyard, mixed in your garden and your borders and stuff on the back edge, it also belongs in your front yard, right out for the neighbors to see uh both in the ground and in pots and in containers. Beautiful plant, little bit susceptible to heat, so you want to give it good solar exposure, but maybe you want to give it solar exposure that's uh that's intense during some part of the day cuz it needs that for growth. Uh it's a lot like the Tagastes marigolds in that way. If you don't get it a good solar exposure, it won't thrive. But you want to give it a break at some point in the day. So maybe you want a point where it gets shadowed through the, mid of the middle part of the day, or where some of the other plants want to give it some shade on different times of the day, or maybe where it gets early morning sun but it gets shaded late in the afternoon. Look for a place where it's going to get at least some shade. That's usually, it's usually harder to find the good solar exposure than shade in much of suburbia. If you have a big spread a uh, big yard, maybe an acre or more, where you have a lot of open space, try to give it a place where it gets solar exposure for, let's say, six to eight hours a day, but in the middle of the summer, it's not getting D on constantly for 10, because that's just too much for it, especially in the warmer climate. So if you live up in, like, Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, all across the Midwest and the northern parts of the country, where you don't get a lot of days over 95 degrees, you don't really have to worry about that. Now you're looking for as much solar exposure as you can get. And the further north you go with this plant, the more intense solar exposure you want, because now it's not about the heat being too much for it. Now you need to give it as much warmth as you can, and you're gonna maximize your solar exposure there. That's true with a lot of plants. You, uh, you can't have hard, fast rules with plants, unless they're all growing in the same place and your rules are for that place. Every time you move a plant, folks, not just from Georgia to Pennsylvania or Texas to Washington State, but every time you move a plant from the east side of your house to the west side of your house, to the south or the north side of your house, every time a neighbor cuts down a tree and opens up sunlight or a new plant grows and creates shade, every time something like that changes, the rules for your plants change. And your challenge is to observe the response of the plant. If you're worried you'll lose them, plant ten of them in ten different locations and see where they thrive. Let nature give you the answer. Don't plant them one place one year and oh, go, that didn't work, right? And you plant them the next year, and yeah, it worked a little better, but this might be put them to the next place. Oh, that was even better. And you go, well, maybe this is even better. Four years down the road, you plant them there. No, I'm going to back up and plant them here. Seeds are cheap. Planting a few plants in the ground or some containers is cheap. Very inexpensive. Plant it everywhere you think it'll do good this year. Evaluate where it performs best. And best is relative, depending on what you want to do with the plant. If you're growing orach for seed, you want great big four-foot high orach. If you're growing oroch for for salad greens, you can pick the little pieces off the side as it gets bigger, and it's still good to eat, and you can use your seed orach that way. But really, you're looking for plants that are going to grow a foot, be chopped, and replaced. So think about what you want the plant to do when you're determining how or what good is or what acceptable is or what best is. Because the place that you need that plant to grow tall, it's going to need more space. Because it's going to branch out. The place that you need that plant for greens can be a lot more of a confined space with a lot higher density plantings because you're only going to let it get so big and you're going to harvest it kind of it's at its peak of value for a forage crop for yourself or maybe even for some livestock. Um, next up is a plant called sunberry. This is the one I've never grown. Sunberry is kind of an offshoot of a plant called garden huckleberry. But it, at least in its its history and its lore is supposed to be different than garden huckleberry, and its proponents say that it's much better eating fresh than garden huckleberry. Garden huckleberry also grows a lot like a tomato plant, um, similar to uh, ground cherry, but doesn't have the husks. And they look like little blueberries, maybe a little bit bigger than a wild blueberry, a little bit smaller than the biggest domestic blueberries. And they make a great mock blueberry substitute as long as you sweetening it, because they're, they're quite bland without any sweetening, unlike a blueberry, which is pretty good fresh. So you're looking to do things with them like make blueberry pies, blueberry jelly, blueberry jam. That's Garden Huckleberry. Well, reportedly, and I can't. Say this is true, I'm going to grow it this year and find out, but reportedly sunberry has a lot more flavor, fresh, and it's a uh, it's a hybrid, but it's a hybrid that reproduces itself. At this point, it's an heirloom. So there's a lot of people that, uh, this is a good time to kind of chime in on, what is a hybrid, and is a hybrid always bad? A hybrid is simply I take one variety of a pepper and another variety of a pepper, and I purposefully cross-pollinate them. And then the resulting offspring is a hybrid. Okay, it's a mutt. It's a mongrel. It's like breeding a shepherd and a collie, and the offspring is a shepherd collie. All right? Make sense? Now, here's the thing. Sometimes if I take two shepherd collie mixes, and I breed those two shepherd collie mixes together, I get a, a second generation, or what they call in, in genealogy, uh, a, a, uh, a, a F2 generation. Right? So F1 is the cross. Shepherd, collie, mix, Boom. Those babies, those puppies, are the F1. When I breed that pup to another similar pup from a similar line together, now I get an F2 generation. The problem with a lot of hybrid seeds, you're dealing with either an F1 or F2 that it comes from the seed supplier, and then as it goes to the subsequent generation of F2 or F3, its reproduction doesn't become reliable. All of a sudden I bring two very similar-looking shepherd collies, right, Breed them together, and the dog that comes out is white, and it doesn't look like it's either of its parents or either of its grandparents, and it's not. I can't reliably get reproduction. With some lines, I can get reliable reproduction. Some lines, I can create an entire new breed, and that's where all our dog breeds really came from: was this crossbreeding and selective breeding. So hybridization in the seed world is not always bad. In fact, sometimes hybrids are a good choice for a specific requirement. You might be able to buy a hybrid variety tomato, and yet you don't want to save the seeds from this particular variety because they don't save well, but it might be perfect for a disease resistance, and that disease is common in your area. Celebrity tomatoes are a great example of that. So if you have a real hard uh, problem in your area with fungal infections with tomatoes, celebrity is not immune to, but a lot more resistant to blight than a lot of other tomatoes. I learned that the hard way last year. Uh, I finally got some tomatoes late in the year by planting some celebrity tomatoes when nothing else would handle the blight that was in the soil at that point. Celebrity managed to hang on and give me some production at the end of the year. So hybrids aren't always bad. You just can't reliably count on a seed reproduction. But sometimes, and a lot of our our heirloom tomatoes are actually hybrids. Uh, Mortgage lifters, a a very uh, old heirloom created during the Great Depression. But it was a hybrid. But it was a hybrid that when you bred it back to itself over and over again, you got reliable reproduction. Well, that's how uh, this plant known as sunberry is. Once it was created through some crossing, breeding into it itself, you get reliable reproduction. So now, for all intents and purposes, it's an open pollinated heirloom. So that is a plant that I just suggest you try. I put it in mainly so I could give you the explanation I just did about hybrids. I know a lot of people are equating a hybrid variety with genetically modified. Those, that, that's like equating a Chevrolet Corvette, right, with, um, if, you're, if you remember back in the 80s, a Yugo. The two are so night and day from each other. It's a Chevy Corvette versus a Ford truck, except those are both too quality to, to put GMO in. That's why I put the Yugo in there, with the Yugo being the genetically modified. If I genetically modify a seed, what this means is that, a biochemical, biomolecular level, I go in there and I actually do gene slicing. So, for instance, one of the genetic modifications that Monsanto's done to seeds is they put a toxin called Bt into corn. And it's a naturally produced toxin. And they take a species that produces that toxin. They find the gene in that that organism's DNA. And they extract that gene. They then take that gene and they combine it with a virus. Because you have to invade at the cellular level. And the only thing we can control that really invades at a cellular level is a virus. So they basically take that gene and implant it to a virus. And then they take that virus and they use it to infect the corn strain. And they pass the trait of producing this Bt to the corn. And now when a corn borer eats the corn, it dies. Okay? So it has its own insecticide built into the corn, but it's safe for you to eat. That's what Monsanto tells us. I don't want to eat that crap. Okay, plain and simple. I don't want to eat that. And they promised us in the beginning it was only being used to feed cattle and make biofuels and things like that. And we found out it was in the food system, and they said, "Oh, it's generally." So that's the whole. And I can't get bogged down today because I want this to be a positive show. But that's the genetic modified world. A hybrid is simply a cross. I take a bell pepper and a banana pepper, and I cross-pollinate them by manual pollination with a, a Q-tip. I isolate that flower. I get that pepper. I it with two or three of them. I grow those the next year. I'm going to get some sort of a hybrid variety. that's probably going to look very close to one of the parents. But then if I want to see what's going to happen to subsequent generations, I, I, I cross them again, and I see how far I have to go to get the trade I want, and I realize that after reproducing it so many times, Whatever value I create, I start to lose, and I get, sooner or later, F3, F4 down the line, a product that's inferior not just to the original hybrid, but probably to both parents as well. So that's hybrids. They play themselves out that way. They still have value because you can take two items and, and combine traits together so that as those two items' traits are combined, they become more adaptable to an individual situation. So hopefully that makes sense. So give, uh, give Sunberry a shot this year. Okay, so um, let's go back to another thing that's kind of red leafy and, and useful in a variety of ways, and it's a plant called huazantle. Um and it's not spelled anything like that. It's spelled H U A U Z O N T L E. It's almost like horizontally, horizontally, I guess is how it looks like it's spelled. But it's wasantle, and that's an, uh, an Indian term. It's a native of Mexico and South, and it's also referred to sometimes as sometimes as red Aztec spinach. So as you might imagine, just like Orach, it's a very good spinach substitute, except that it's fiery red. Uh, so the leaves can either be used, young leaves uh, from new shoots or from side shoots can be used uh, in a, as a salad green, let's say. So fresh and, you know, just washed up and thrown into a salad, maybe chilled a little bit, you've got another spinach substitute. Now, just like Orach, this will grow right through the summer for you when spinach won't hang anymore. So it's it's a good crop to grow in your warm summers when you can't grow your traditional spinaches. But it's also, I mean, this thing's almost like you take broccoli, right, and you cross it with spinach. It gets these seed heads on it, but unlike broccoli seed heads that are these big round seed heads, they're kind of a long, almost sort of like a wheat-shaped seed head. Well, when you cut those off, and maybe some stalks and some leaves, and you braise that, little salt, pepper, something like that, cook it sort of like you would broccoli, uh, it doesn't taste, I, I say it's like broccoli, but it doesn't smell like, if you don't like the broccoli smell or if you even, you'd like it but you know what the broccoli smell is I'm talking about, or that kind of broccoli unique taste where I like broccoli but I really like it with some cheese on it and without the cheese I'm not real fond of it, um, this doesn't have that kind of character that broccoli does. It just has sort of a similar texture in the seed heads. It's so a much better, to me, fresh-eating vegetable. It's native to southern North America, uh, which means that it does very well throughout temperate North America when grown as an annual. It doesn't tend to be really good at reseeding itself, uh, so you have to start new plants every year or direct sow into the soil every year, but it'll grow all the way up to the Canadian border in past as an annual. Uh, so you have a plant again. With a high nutritional value, very similar nutritional profile, actually to kind of a spinach broccoli cross, which again is it almost looks like nature did this for us, um, with a more pleasing flavor for a lot of people than typical broccoli. We can use it as a salad green, and we can use the seed heads more as a braising vegetable. Uh, and, again, grows right through the summer when our normal spinach is just getting taken down for the count. won't hang. So quickly goes to bolt. This stuff hangs right through. But, again, I want you to think about the value as a conversation starter and for its intrinsic value. This is an ancient plant. This is a plant that 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, its native people walked through what's now Mexico and Central America and down into South America. And carved out little clearings in the jungles and in the agricultural areas. And began to settle and looked to nature and said, what does nature provide that we can turn into a, a, a crop that we can grow for ourselves? Much like uh, amaranth and corn and native beans, this is a plant that our native ancestors looked at and said, hey, this is a great plant. This provides for us. Nature's given it to us. Imagine what would happen if we just gave it a little extra care. And this plant, while it still grows wild, is not known to most people. When's the last time you went down to your local grocery store and said, Hey, got some walzante? The guy said, What? Walzantle? You write it down for him, H-A-U. I don't know what that is. When's the last time you went to uh, a restaurant? And they served you a salad. And on the little list of salad ingredients, where it's like dandelion greens and frisée, and, you know, all this other cool stuff that we have now. And there was wasatle. When's was the last time you saw anything that red in your salad anyway, unless it was some red cabbage, which is, to me, a little, actually a little bit boring. So it's something you can't just get anywhere. Yet it has a tradition and a story that can be used to either reach out or if you've got kids and you're trying to make them understand what's been lost and why these things are important and why we need to be working hard to make sure that we don't lose the genetic diversity that's out there in the biosphere, in our food uh, supply. This is a great way to explain it. Look at this plant. We take this tiny seed we put it in the ground. It grows, you know, waist high. It starts shooting out these seed heads, and we cut these, and we take these in, and we braise them, and we can eat them. And it's like eating a multivitamin out of your backyard. It grows anywhere. Can't kill it with anything other than cold. Almost completely pest-free because the pests around here don't know what to do with it. It doesn't fit their niche. They don't know what it is. We let a little bit of go to seed a little bit longer. We get little florets out of it. Bees come and hang out on it. We shake it out. We Get a little handful of seeds. And we could grow it again next year. And no one around here really knows what it is. It's something special. It's something unique. Yet, even though it's so unknown, our existence today is directly tied to it is a food crop that our ancestors consumed. There's so much more to gardening than the direct pleasure that we get out of it and the direct food that we get out of it. There's so much more to guarding folks than the survival aspect and the long-term supply of the food, food supply for ourselves as individuals. There's a preservation aspect here that we need to understand because it's what will make you care about what you're doing beyond, hey, I could just go buy a can of beans and be done with this. To realize that you're preserving tradition. And it's survivalist. I think personally, it's up to you whether you want to adopt this philosophy or not. This is my opinion. But as survivalists, we shouldn't just be striving to make sure that we as individuals survive, or that our families survive, or that our community survives. We should be looking beyond that. We shouldn't just be looking at, we talk about politics sometimes, and I want to make sure that our nation, as it was founded, survives. Even if the republic falls, as some people predicted, well, what I want to see come up out of the ashes is not a new Europe, is not a new Australian? If you live there, I'm not putting you down. But I want a new, if we have to come back out of the ashes, I want a new America based on what Thomas Jefferson and George Washington envisioned. I don't want to lose that. I want to preserve that. But beyond that, we need to preserve and make sure that the traditions that brought us to where we are survive. As crazy as it sounds, a little red weed that substitutes for both spinach and broccoli called wazantle helps us do that. The next one are Asian long beans. If you saw my videos on YouTube last year, you probably saw me harvesting some of, uh, what they call a green asparagus bean. And these are a black seeded variety. Let me tell you what I love about Asian long beans. Uh, they get these big, beautiful purple flowers on them. They just, and the, the purple flowers on these Asian long beans, at least the green variety, I'm gonna talk about the red ones in a minute that I haven't grown yet, attract, uh, mason bees. Like nothing else I've ever seen. These things would open in the morning and they'd close by afternoon. And in the mornings when those little purple flowers would open on all those bean vines in my yard, they would be literally swarming with orchard mason bees. And if if you don't know what an orchard mason bee is, it's kind of a small version of a honeybee that doesn't produce honey. It lives on pollen. Uh, They don't generally sting. I think they can sting. I think you have to kind of, I've never been stung by one. I've kind of moved them out of the way, and they're very passive, very gentle creatures. I do believe if you grab one and, and squeeze it in your hand, it'll sting you. Uh, but I think that's what it takes to get them to sting again. I've never known anybody stung by a mason bee. Uh, so they're a gentle pollinator that, you know, maybe if you have somebody with bee allergies, you have a lot less to worry about with them in your garden than conventional honeybees.
1: They require very
0: little care. They just require a good place to lay their eggs and reproduce. But they're amazing pollinators, and they're not suffering from colony collapse disorder and some of the other things that are affecting our honeybee populations. So they're a great thing to have in your garden. They love these flowers. I don't know why. The next thing I saw was that as they got bigger and bigger produced more flowers, I started having hummingbirds come there every morning and, and uh, going into these flowers, which I've never really had that many. I've had a few, but I never had as many hummingbirds as last year uh, hitting these. And scarlet runners, they were hitting those too. So it was great to see. And the flowers do remind me somewhat of scarlet runner beans. The next thing I loved about these, though, it got really hot. My scarlet runners started to suffer, and they didn't do very good, except where I had them growing in some motlet shape. Uh, my, my bush beans started to suffer from the heat. They got hit with flea beetles. Uh, when it got really, really hot in the middle of the summer, none of the beans were doing good except these things. They grew. I would estimate I had vines last year 14 feet long. I had to keep – the trellis was only 6 feet high, so I had to keep running them back and forth between each other. So they handle the heat. That means they don't do real good early spring when it's cold, but they grow so fast – you can wait till you, like, two to three weeks past your last frost day when you know you're not going to have frost before you plant these things and they'll grow like crazy. The next thing was the, the ability to save seed, reproduce, and grow another crop was insane. I grew. About, like, 16 of these at one spot on a trellis. I had some stuff that would kind of fizzle out through the rest of the year. And I walked these beans to the end of my trellis with subsequent generations. And here's what I mean. Those 16 plants came up. I got beans off them. I let a couple of the beans grow completely long and turn brown, pulled them off and let the the pods dry out in the sun. I opened them up. I took the seeds. Straight from, in the same year, into the ground, another 16 plants. Those grew up and started producing, okay? I pulled some off of those, did the same thing, and I had a third generation in one year producing, and I got seed from that generation that I saved. So I grew four generations of seed in one season with these plants. Now, I'll admit, Texas, we have a long summer, but as soon as we got into kind of October, they were kind of like, eh, we're tired. This is not our kind of weather. You know, and by November, even though we had no freezing days in November, they were done. So we're talking about May to October, four generations of seed crop. So they're just an amazing plant to grow and reproduce seed for. And on top of it, as many, as of, them, many of them as we ate, as many of them as I planted that year, I have a one-gallon um, Ziploc bag that's about, I would say, a quarter of the way full with seed that I saved for this year. And that might not sound like a lot, but these are a very small little black bean. They're also pretty good. I cooked up a few of them to see what they were like uh, as a dry bee. So the disease-saving aspect. So I got something that grows in the heat, attracts pollinating insects, attracts hummingbirds, disease and pest resistance, nothing really harm. There's a few things kind of nibbled on the leaves here and there, but nothing that ever did them any damage. And then the other thing is they're not common. I can't go down to the grocery store generally and buy these things. The, additionally, is the yield. I mean, you can let these things grow. They call them yard long. I, I never got any yard long, but 20 inches was, was pretty common. Once they started to get beyond that, they would start to go to seed. They would start to, like, they were kind of, we're done, we're tired, we're going to turn brown and reproduce. So I was cutting them at about 15, 16 inches, most of them, some of them up into two feet. So think about this for a yield. You want some green beans for dinner tonight, you've got some green beans producing outside, you go out and pick enough green beans for dinner. I bet you pick more than maybe fifteen of them, but I go pick fifteen of these things, chop them up, and braise them with a little bit of bacon in a wok, and that's enough for for, for dinner. So there's a lot less work. Now they don't. Now here's the other side. They don't keep as well as greens. In fact, I would not advise you to do a lot of blanching and uh, freezing with these. Uh, I didn't try dehydrating them. I Don't know how they're going to do with that because the internal seeds are probably going to be very much like a dry bean unless you pick them very, very young. So these are more an eat-as-you-go fresh bean. But what does that do? That lets you take your, your beans that do store well and put them up, and consume less of them during the period of production. So you take your Asian beans as your primary consumption variety during your high production times, and that lets you uh put more of your green beans and runner beans and things like that away through dehydration, canning, uh and, and flash freezing. So they they serve that aspect as well. And, and yeah, the disease resistance was amazing. I had some pest problems last year, nothing bothered these things. The only thing I found they didn't like is I built the trellises you might have seen in my videos uh out of uh the stainless steel, not stainless steel, uh, galvanized, uh, uh electrical conduit, which is recommended by Mel Bartholomew in his book on square foot gardening. And once these plants got to the top, if they started running on top of that steel, that steel would get hot and scorch them. Uh, so I'm gonna look at building trellises this year out of more natural materials, wood and bamboo. As we move to Arkansas, I'm gonna look at growing clumping bamboos to grow my own trell- trellises. Why buy something you can grow? But uh, Asian long bees, I'm going to try this Chinese red noodle variety from Baker Creek this year. The, a lot of stuff that grows red or purple, when you cook it tends to turn green. These reportedly keep that red color even when they're cooked. So I, I'm looking forward to, uh, to trying that second variety this year. But I really recommend that one of the things you add to your gardening is these Chinese long beans or Chinese yard long beans or asparagus beans or however, you know, whatever literature you're reading uh, calls them. But these can grow anywhere. You, anywhere you got a fence, you can go plant 10 of these things, throw a little mulch on top to keep the moisture, and they'll handle the heat. A sunny fence. You can cover it with these things. You've got these beautiful flowers every morning, these unique looking beans, uh, completely passive, and they are a legume. So since they're a legume, they also fix nitrogen. It's really an amazing plant that's just not common in America. It should be more common. Next one up is called New Zealand spinach. It's not really from New Zealand originally, but they took it there, and the New Zealanders liked it. So it became synonymous with New Zealand, much the way kiwis did. Kiwis are also not from New uh, New Zealand, even though they now call New Zealanders kiwis. Um, I won't say too much about New Zealand spinach other than it's a great spinach substitute. It's high in iron. It's high in folate. It's got a decent amount of protein in it. Uh, it'll grow, I don't care how hot it gets, you can grow New Zealand spinach. It won't bolt on you, which is where it goes to seed real fast. It kind of becomes not usable anymore. Uh, very easy to allow to go to seed, though, long-term, save seed for. Uh, very easy to germinate, very easy to start, either as plants or direct sow in the ground. And if you have a desire to have uh, a spinach, And you want something that looks more like traditional spinach, because, again, we talked about Lozantle and Oroch, and they both fill the spinach role, but they don't, I've never found them to taste like spinach. I found that when you call both of those a spinach substitute, it's more like you could cook them, prepare them, and use them like spinach. Where New Zealand spinach, remarkably similar in taste and flavor profile, and a little bit thicker of a leaf. Spinach generally has kind of a thick leaf when you eat it fresh, and it has a kind of a juicy characteristic that I found absent in Wasantle and Oroch. Uh, Not that they're not good, they just don't have that texture that spinach does. New Zealand spinach is much closer to that. I won't say too much about it because it's a relatively well-known but unusual plant. It's actually pretty easy to find seed for. A couple of my nurseries around here have seeds. No one sells plants for it. No one I talk to, other than people at the nursery, have ever actually seemed to have heard of it around here until after I talked to them. But it is a great plant to grow. I think it belongs in your backyard. Uh, moving on from there is amaranth. I won't talk too long about amaranth today because it's a plant I've talked about a lot in the past. But in some ways, amaranth is a super plant. Let's think about all the things that amaranth can do. When it's young, it can be used just like orach or New Zealand spinach, is a spinach substitute, is a green. It is one of the most nutritious greens, even though they're not all green. Some are red, some are gold, some are yellow, some are green. But it's one of the most nutritious leaf vegetables in the world. Absolutely amazing. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of varieties of both wild and domesticated amaranths. It grows everywhere in the world, which means it will probably grow near where you are. So we already have a plant that will grow everywhere and is extremely nutritious as a green. Most varieties grow four to seven feet or taller. I think the tallest amaranth plant in the world was something insane like 20 feet tall. There's a video of it on YouTube. It looks like a tree. Um, but just look at the five, six-foot varieties. So what we have is a plant that we can grow up. We can pull, and even as it gets big, and the big leaves are not tender and really good to eat as a green anymore, it keeps throwing out these little shoots. Well, you can just go in and prune the little shoots, kind of like cut-and-come-again lettuce on steroids and use those throughout the entire season as a plant, as a, as a green substitute again. So now I've got a plant I can grow big, or when it's small, I can cut, you know, just like I talked about orach. I can let amaranth grow up to about a foot and a half and just cut the whole plant and braise it, or I can let it grow big and cut off smaller shoots and pieces for braising. But I can plant it like corn almost, and, you know, big uh, station plantings for a grain crop. And now I get a grain out of amaranth, these little tiny seeds, but they're very easy to harvest. Once they dry out, you pretty much shake them, and they just fall out. You can just take a five-gallon bucket and shake your seed heads over it and do a little bit of winnowing, which is kind of tossing it up into wind window in front of a, a, uh, a fan to, to get rid of uh, all the excess little, you know, chaff and stuff like that. But it's ready to use as soon as it's a seed. I don't have to separate it from anything other than, you know, again, little tufts and stuff like that. There's no casing on it. There's, there's, I don't have to beat it or anything. I just have to shake it out, and there it is. It is extremely high on protein as a grain. It makes a great um, gluten-free flour. You can use it to make cakes and things like that. So I've got this grain that can be used that way. I can use it as a whole grain, kind of as a cereal, or I can mix it into something like a bread or whatever as a whole grain to kind of beef up its nutritional profile. Not enough. All right, certain varieties, and some people have tried this and written me and said, I can't get it to work. You need to look at the information on the particular plant. But many varieties of amaranth, if you take them and you put them into a hot skillet, you end up creating what looks like mini popcorn. But it has so much more of a nutritional value than popcorn ever possibly could because it's got that high protein that corn is lacking and the vitamins and minerals that corn is lacking. Now, on top of this, I get this huge plant. Right, And I take my grain off it. Well, what am I left with then? I'm left with a massive amount of uh, biomass that can be used for mulch and composting. With an extremely high nutrient profile, a deep root system that mines a lot of the nutrients deep into the ground, pulls them up into the plant, and then when I chop these plants up and either compost them or use them as mulch and let them break down on my garden beds, and you can create all your mulch from things like amaranth makes that nutrition, that soil nutrition that your plants need that don't have the deep root systems, bioavailable, in other words, it makes them available to your other plants so that they can use these minerals that have been pulled up from deep within your soil profile. This is one plant. You take certain varieties of it, like Hopi red dye, they call it red dye for a reason. Uh, it's very, very red. You can extract uh, the, the, the the color from it and use it as a dye to dye cloth and other materials. Again, this is one plant. It's almost a wonder plant. And you have to ask yourself, why isn't amaranth popular in, in North America today? Why isn't it popular around the world today? Well, see, these Native Americans had this funny idea that they were entitled to their own beliefs about spirituality and God. You know, they thought that it was up to them to determine who to worship and what to worship and how to worship and how to look at the world in a spiritual manner. And then these people called missionaries showed up to help tell them about their version of God, and they didn't agree with the natives' American view of God, especially the Central Southern American part. When we come to Amaranth, and one of the rituals that these guys had, these crazy natives, was they made these little effigies of animals, and they used honey and amaranth seed and some other things to make these little animal seeds. These little, like, little little caricature, right? So maybe they they fed on tapers, which are a big, ugly-looking rodent thing. They make a little taper out of amaranth seed and honey. So what's wrong with that? Well, then they would eat it. They would consume it. And they saw this as their life came from the amaranth, and their life came from the animals. And this was honoring the spiritual side of that. Well, to the missionaries, this looked entirely too much like communion. So Amaranth was banned by the people that settled, you know, North and South America. And the Indians that grew it were prevented from growing it. I should say the Native Americans that grew it were preventing, prevented from growing it. And it's only recently come back into any level of real production again. So that's how we helped when we came here, by banning a plant that was not only critical to the native population, but can solve so many problems in modern agriculture. Because it'll grow where corn won't. It'll grow where wheat won't. It's a good livestock feed. It's a good human food. And it has so much flexibility and creativity. But, you know, we had to get rid of it because we didn't agree with somebody's religious practices. That's why you don't hear a lot about religion on this show. I believe you can believe whatever you want, as long as you don't try to force it onto somebody that's not receptive. You tell people about it if you want to. But please respect people's right to tell you, I know, I'm not interested, go tell somebody else. I think it's important that we all do that because history has shown us, when we don't, the consequences can last for hundreds of years after we don't even know that's why the consequences are there anymore. There's a little history lesson thrown in today. Next one up is called lamb's quarters. And for some of you that are very informed and know a lot about, you know, eating weeds and going out and foraging, you're going to say, hey, lamb's quarters, that crap grows from Florida to Washington and from Maine to California. It's everywhere. It doesn't seem to be real common around my area of Texas, but you're right, it is everywhere. It, it grows anywhere and it grows everywhere and it grows wild. So if it grows anywhere and everywhere and it grows wild, why the heck would you bring a weed into your garden? Well, um, much like New Zealand spinach, it's a good spinach substitute. It's very high in uh, protein, for a green. Uh, the seeds are extremely high in protein. Um, it grows anywhere, and it doesn't die, and it's easy to grow. So that's why I recommend you bring it in. But I also tell you this. I think it's a great way for you to start connecting with the origins of agriculture. You have two ways you can do this. One is if you can't find any lamb's quarters in your area, which would be unusual, uh, you can go out and buy some Lambs Quarter seeds. I'm gonna put resources to get all of these plants in seed form from good suppliers today. Uh, not all in the same location, places that I've gotten them before, and I want to kind of spread the wealth, so to speak, with advertising for seed producers that preserve this stuff. So, I don't want to just say go to Seed Savers Exchange, or just go to Seeds Exchange, or just go to Baker Creek, or, or just go to High Mowing. I want to, I want you to understand that there's a lot of companies like that out there that are working hard, and most of them, unlike, you know, Pepsi and Coke, or Monsanto and ConAgra, that are like head to head beating each other up, These guys are working together. They don't, you know, they're like, please give me some business, but, yeah, give some business to these other guys, too, because this task is too large. So I'll give you a source of lamb's quarter seeds uh, today. That's one way you can do it. Or you can go out and just find find wild lamb's quarters, and as it's going to seed, harvest the seed from the wild. That's the way I recommend that you do it. If you're just not sure you're going to identify them, right, there's plenty of pictures online. It's easy to do, but you can always buy some seed. Plant it, now you know exactly what you're looking for, and keep searching in the wild till you find it, and bring a wild strain into your home. Start cultivating it. Over time, select the ones that have the best-tasting leaves, that thrive the best, and do your own selective breeding with a completely wild seed. That's why I included it today. Because there's so many things out there we could do that with. Jerusalem artichokes, they grow everywhere. So why not go out in the fall when they die back and dig up some tubers from the wild and harvest wild tubers and bring them in. Same type of scenario. And we're not going to talk about Jerusalem artichokes. today. But lamb's quarters, I just think, is one of these plants that is hated. It's hated as a pasture weed, even though cattle eat it. I, I I don't get that. It's hated even though it has a very high protein grain that it produces. You get a lot of seed from a relatively small amount of a small amount of uh, 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 lamb's quarters. It's not really a seed that I recommend you use as a standalone for flour, but it's a great adjunct, something that we add to a flour to boost its protein. So if we take something, we were making, let's say, um, ash cakes, which is kind of basically a flour, and we make kind of a very thin pancake, and we cook them on hot coals um, out in kind of some wilderness survival type arrangement. But if we added to those ash cakes, you know, a good handful of amaranth and a good handful of lamb's quarter grain, and we put that in there, the nutritional value of that, even if we're using whole wheat flour, just skyrocketed. There's so much we can do. We can even do that with using as a base for our flour acorns. So now we have all things that we can grow or harvest wild, and we boost the nutritional uh, profile well beyond what even whole wheat can do for us, which you don't really find a lot of whole wheat laying around in the woods. So uh, lamb's quarters are de- definitely recommended. Now up till now, I have one more left, and up till now, I would re- I would gather that. With the exception of Amaranth, and that's only through specialty order and specialty catalogs. I've never seen Amaranth in a store, unless it was like a Whole Foods or something like that. So with the exception of Amaranth, nothing I've talked about today is easily acquired at the supermarket or the grocery store. And even with Amaranth, the only thing you're going to acquire there is the grain. The greens and the things that you can use outside of that generally are not acquirable. The next one, it's not real common to find everywhere, but I think you can find it without looking too hard. It's buckwheat. So why am I breaking with, you know, kind of this you-can't-find-it-anywhere thing and and going to something that, you know, if you want to order a a bucket of buckwheat, 50 pounds of it, it's pretty easy to do. It's, It's pretty affordable. It's pretty cheap. Why not just do it? Because we're also realists, and we understand that we live in a precarious environment, and someday we might actually have to rely on our skills and our abilities to garden to either supplement or maybe even provide for the majority of our diet if society kind of takes a downward spiral as much as it possibly could. We hope that never occurs. We're not gloom and doom here at the Survival Podcast, but it's possible. So since it's possible, we have to be realists about that. The other thing is that people want to be able to grow their own grains, things that you can make flour out of, things that you can make bread out of, things that you can make beer out of. People want that. And I gave you all these reasons that wheat is difficult or... Unless we're in that shit-hit-the-fan scenario, and you're just getting to the point where you're going to grow everything, it just financially doesn't make as much sense to grow wheat as it does to just buy wheat. Especially if you find local producers and go buy direct from them, and you can get wheat for next to nothing, right? I mean, it's one of the cheapest commodities in the world, even as prices on it technically skyrocket by percentages, and in much of the third world, where it's relied on a lot more in America, in American money, at least as long as the American dollar holds the relative value that it has right now, it is dirt cheap. Buckwheat's cheap too, not as cheap, but it's cheap. It's not as cheap because even though it's less desirable in the in the modern marketplace, it's uh, it's less common. So people that are buying it usually have a specific reason. So they're you know the producers able to charge a little bit more for it. But the big thing is everything that I told you about wheat in the beginning, how, you know, it, it's so easily damaged and it, it's kind of a hassle to harvest on your own and it's, it's really, uh, you know, hard to grow in certain times of the year in certain areas of the country and it takes up so much space and, you know, all these other things is not true about buckwheat. Buckwheat loves heat, so as long as you have warm summers, you can grow buckwheat. If you have long warm summers, you can grow two crops of buckwheat it produces a tremendous amount of biomass compared to wheat. Because as it grows, instead of just having these long grass-like stalks with a few side leaves, it has kind of more of a bushy profile. So that bushy profile creates a lot of biomass that is highly available then for mulch and for compost. It's also quite high. It doesn't, buckwheat is not a legume, so does it doesn't fix nitrogen to the soil, but its leaves are very high in nitrogen when they're broken back down into the soil. So it's a good nitrogen crop. Additionally, buckwheat honey is some of the most desirable honey in the world. The flowers produced by even a relatively small patch of buckwheat will do a tremendous amount of attracting of uh, bees, both mason and honeybees, to your yard or to your piece of property. So it's a great way to bring pollinating insects in. And if you're a beekeeper, man, your bees are going to be happy with you if you plant a few patches of buckwheat. It also has a deep root system, so it is a very good uh, plant for opening up soil. And then last but not least, it's a great grain that's relatively easy to to harvest. You pretty much take uh, a scythe or some other cutting tool, cut your buckwheat to the ground, leave the roots in the ground, let it rot. It opens up what you would call a fast carbon pathway. Basically, it's self-composting, broken the soil up. All right? Now we take our, our, our buckwheat in, in groups and we lay them on something like a, a big white mat or a, a, a big white piece of board or something like something we can fold and dump out of, and we just lay it on there and we just beat it. And we don't have to beat it real hard, and all the dry seed falls out, and the green seeds very uh, kindly just kind of stay put and don't fall out. So we don't have any separating of seed to do. We'll end up with a lot of, we'll call it chaff, but it's not really chaff the way we think of it with wheat, where we've got kind of a kernel broken out of the chaff. We're just talking about kind of tufts of seeds and seed heads and some flower heads and things like that in there. So we dump that into a bucket, and we thresh it simply by taking a, a little fan and pouring it back into the bucket and blowing off all the thresh, and we have grain that's ready to use right away. We can toast it, we can grind it, we can use it whole, we can crack it. There's so many things we can do with it. It's extremely nutrition, nutritious. It's got more protein than wheat does. Uh, it tastes good. It makes a great bread. It makes a great flatbread. Uh, very highly used in Russia until modern times because it would grow in places where conventional wheat wouldn't. And then we have all the biomass, again, that we can turn into something else. It also needs a little bit of nitrogen, but it works so beautifully. In a secession planting, where we're going from one crop to the next. So we do something like this. We come in early, early in the spring. We plant something like a winter pea crop that gives us a lot of nitrogen. We harvest our peas. We chop our peas down. We turn them into the soil a little bit. Just we don't have to dig the soil deep or anything. In fact, we really don't even have to turn them into the soil at all. We just build up the biomass as mulch. We went, about two weeks after, maybe a week after our pea harvest, we come in and we plant buckwheat. Buckwheat will absolutely choke out all the weeds on that piece of of land that we're growing the buckwheat in. And it can be a small little patch or it can be a great big patch, it's up to you. But it will, buckwheat grows so fast and so intensive once the warm weather comes. We get flower heads, we can chop it. Odds are, if we want to, we can get a second crop of buckwheat in anywhere with a long summer, after we harvest the first one. Now we have a massive amount of biomass, probably more than we're going to use right there. We put half of it back to the ground right where we're growing. We use the other half of it either in our compost bins or on other uh, plants. Biointensive gardening, what they end up doing is they take a lot of the beds and the garden beds that they're growing, and they grow things in there that you'll never eat just to produce biomass for compost and mulch. Well, buckwheat, and again, amaranth that we talked about earlier, are ways to produce massive amounts of biomass, but still end up with an edible component. So to me, buckwheat belongs. Even if you're going to grow a little ten by ten patch of it, if you want to grow a grain in your backyard, buckwheat's the way to go. Grew it a lot in the past. I'm going to try to grow some this year up in Arkansas, even though I'm not going to be there. It's pretty uh, pretty good at taking care of itself. It grows wild in a lot of parts of the country now. It's kind of escaped. One of the things you might consider doing with buckwheat, and people would maybe advise you against this. I'll advise you to do it though. If you can follow, find wild growing buckwheat. It's probably been through generations of adaptation in the wild. If you take that, if it's still producing good quality large seed, if you harvest that seed and sow it and take care of it, nature's done a lot of the uh, work for you. There's also some great places to get buckwheat, uh, good quality organic buckwheat. One is high mowing organic seeds. Again, I'm gonna have links to all these seeds today, but I know this was kind of a, a different show, definitely for a Monday. But I hope I've got your mind going here and realizing you have to go out this year and plant all ten of these. But if you pick two or three or four that you've never grown before and you add them into what you're already doing, I think you'll get a lot of happiness, pleasure, and advantages from it. If you're a new gardener, let me tell you, some of these things are so much easier to grow than peppers and tomatoes. Uh, peppers and tomatoes aren't hard to grow, but they have things that can happen to them. You have good years and bad years with them. Oroch grows again. If it's not cold, it'll grow. Little bit of organic matter, a little bit of nitrogen compost, that type of thing. It's going to grow. Asian long beans grow. Period. Heat. They don't care. They grow. Rain, they don't care. If it gets too wet, for some plants, they start to get fungal infections. It rained, and it rained, and it rained. And all those things did last year was grow bigger and faster. And then when the sun came out after, you know, a couple days of being cloudy and rainy, and that sun hit them with all that water, they went nuts. So a lot of these things, um, Lake grows. Uh, New Zealand spinach, can't kill it. It's a little bit fragile when it's a baby, but once it gets established, once it's over six feet tall, the only thing that kills it, again, is cold or somebody stepping on it. I mean, it is that tough. Lance quarters, come on. People have been trying to kill. That's like, that's like growing coyotes. Right? Um I, All of these things. Buckwheat, again, is a very, very strong, very stable crop. So all of these things have an ability to take kind of the advanced gardener to a new level with just bringing variety in that wasn't there and new advantages that weren't there, new nutritional values that weren't there, and new conversation pieces to spread kind of the message of gardening and preparedness together where you're kind of covertly spreading preparedness. But for the new gardener, we take a lot of the, anguish of working so hard and getting such little production your first year because your beds aren't quite right yet, you haven't built up the organic matter yet, you don't pay quite the attention you need to yet, you don't have as much production of biomass on site, so you're not, you should have to buy your mulch, you're not using as much as you should, and we take that sting out a little bit so that you stick with it, because again, if you're planting things like New Zealand spinach and orach and amaranth, you're going to have at least some of the things in your garden really succeed. And a great thing you could do is plant a large variety of amaranth, folks. Wait till it's about two feet tall. Uh, Something that's going to have a, an eventual height of, let's say, six feet, and don't do this three sisters approach, right? Plant Asian long beans with amaranth. Let them crawl up the amaranth. Natural trellis. And in the end, you pick your beans, you cut your grain, you chop to the ground. Now you have two forms of biomass pre-mixed together. You have the the high carbon and phosphorus that's going to be in the uh, amaranth uh, uh, biomass, and the high nitrogen that's going to be in the biomass of the Asian long beans, all ready to go either as mulch or compost. So I hope you realize that today is more than just a laundry list of plants. I could have done that in ten minutes. What I wanted to do today was bring a new level of education to you on what you can do with your gardens. And understand this, no matter what anybody tells you, gardening is one of the biggest survival topics we could ever have. It's not just if something goes wrong, we'll have food. But if we could turn America back into a country of people that all grow just a little bit of their own food, a lot of the crisis that we we can expect to see in the future can be mitigated or headed off altogether. The solution to hunger is growing food. As simple as that sounds, it is the answer. This has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they are. You can scream and you can holler
1: It really doesn't matter all gets